Okay, here we are. I hope everybody had a good week. Internet, what is up? We're back with episode two. On this episode, we talked to my good friend, Alan Benedict, who is the proprietor of Everything 12 Ounce Profit, a amazing brand that uh, Alan bootstrapped back in his days of running the mean streets in New York with a skateboard and a can of spray paint. So everybody pull up a seat, grab your favorite beverage, and we're going to dive into Episode two with my man, Alan Benedict. Live. All right. Here we are at the Alan Benedict compound in way northern Montana. Yep. Out in the the valley just outside a glacier. Mm-hmm. Does not suck up here. Does not. At all. Far cry from where I was a couple of years back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can say that again. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, spent 15 years hanging out in downtown New York, minus a year we did in Berlin. Yeah. Looking for the exact opposite of that and landed in here. northwest Montana. How was uh so tell me about the Berlin thing like what were you what were you doing in Germany? Uh, it's kind of it's kind of funny actually. Um, basically, I went out there for a book release party, mm-hmm. releasing a bunch of books we were publishing. Had a really good time at the party. Came back and we had lost our lease on our apartment in New York, and used that as kind of the catalyst to talk my wife into moving. Uh, to Berlin. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we had a great spot, and we looked around, really couldn't find shit, and decided to make the move. The kids weren't quite old enough to be starting school, so we used that as sort of an excuse to go out there. And, and how was that? You know what? It's kind of funny, because I kind of wanted to slow down for a little while, like New York's nonstop, mm-hmm. you know, it's oh, yeah. it just feels like business 24-7, like even... When you break for dinner, like, you find an excuse to talk business. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of wanted to slow down, but it was, like, the opposite. It was over there, dudes hanging out, like, having three, four-hour dinners, drinking bottles of wine. And, you know, then from there you go to the pub and hang out and drink for a while longer. And at first it was cool, but nothing gets done. You yeah, know? the level of productivity drops drastically from what I've heard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... Dudes out there, like, just hang out, drinking espresso, like, chain-smoking, like, hand-rolled mm-hmm. cigarettes and pretty much arguing American politics. So, it was fun for a little while, but, you know, I was trying to get stuff done. Um, at the time, we were talking to a big publisher, distributor out there about distributing our books. And, you know, it's like, out here, I could you know, bump into somebody on a train and before you hit the third stop, you already got a business deal in place. And out there you have dinner with somebody 50 times and can't even breach the subject of business yet. Mm-hmm. So that got to be a bit of a challenge and, you know, coming home and having the kids listen to freaking SpongeBob SquarePants in German. was kind of, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it just yeah. kind of got old, but yeah. you want to slit your wrists. Out there, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it, nah, I mean, it was an amazing time. I obviously 
I'm glad that we that we did it, but you know, we we put in almost a year, and that was enough for me. Yeah. It was the year that the iPhone came out, and I was like, "Fuck!" Like they're not going to get the iPhone for another year, and we, you know, I'm like, <laughs> all my friends are all like talking about this new phone. Yeah, tech started <clears throat> really taking off right about then. Yeah, I mean, it's dumb, but uh, like I I did miss like the little things that we kind of take for granted out here, you know, right? Going into a store and having like 5,000 different brands of soap and toothpaste to pick from and out there it's like they got three mm-hmm. you know here it's like yeah walmart's open 24 hours over there it's like you got to get it done before five because it closes yeah they roll up the sidewalks early yeah but it, i mean it was an amazing experience but yeah we we got our fill we came back after about a year and uh was in new york for a total of 15 years before coming out this way yeah, that's not a small amount of time in the big city. No, absolutely not. Nice. Okay, well, tell me about once you or wherever it plugs in. What? Tell, start telling me about what the with twelve ounce profit. Like, how did that whole thing come about? And like, what was kind of the genesis of twelve ounce profit? All right. So twelve ounce profit was actually uh, a little kind of graffiti street art fanzine that I started in college and. To be honest with you, it was a school project and also a way of me kind of giving the other magazines that I collected at the time a kick in the ass. Um, I kind of saw a lot of the potentials into some of the magazines of the day. Actually, one of or a couple of them that were like fascinating to me was like George magazine that JFK Jr. did. Mm -hmm. Um, What I found fascinating about that is it's the first time I saw somebody kind of talk about politics but from a perspective of lifestyle so i mean this is probably before the time of a lot of people that would be listening but you know there was one episode or uh, one issue that they had released i had cindy crawford on the cover like kind of dressed up as george washington with the powdered wig i remember that yeah yeah and it it, honestly it blew my mind because up until then like politics was the driest shit in the world but you know he found a way to sort of recontextualize the conversation and open it up to a broader audience and then uh, around that same time, Wired Magazine came out, and uh, they did the same thing. I was a big fan of 2600 Magazine, which basically reads like stereo instructions, you know, like install instructions. And uh, Wired Magazine, again, came at it from like the perspective of lifestyle and talking about like, you know, interviewing dudes like Steve Jobs, but not necessarily talking about the tech, like talking about the guy behind the tech. So I found that kind of interesting, and there was another one, too, that was real inspiring, Colors Magazine, which was put out by uh, an old brand called Benetton. And um, just, it was almost like, again, it was like kind of National Geographic, but almost from a lifestyle point of view. So, yeah, I mean, um, I saw, like, some of these magazines that were coming out, and I was like, oh, man, like, I really like what these guys are doing. Like, I can kind of apply that to this and make it cool. You know, I was in college at the time trying to get some school credit and put it out and super, super well received. So I had no intention of doing more than one issue, but because it was so so well received, I kept doing it. And um, yeah, it kind of grew, the whole thing grew out of control, like got to a point where I think the last issue I did was uh, issue six and we managed to distribute 35,000 copies independently. And then around that time too, like internet was starting to get big and, you know, uh, I knew there was a lot of conversations going on online, but it was mostly through 
like internet relay chat, which at that time I found way too confusing. Right. So started getting into like the whole kind of how to set up like a BBS system, some kind of message board system and uh, put up a website. This was in 1998 and that started growing big and got to a point where we're doing eight and a half, nine million views a month. And Oh, wow. So those are big numbers back then. Yeah. It was re- in fact, we were in the top 200 at one point for the largest like forum on the internet at that time. Oh, wow. Top 200 globally, huh? Yeah. And, um, put up our first online store actually in 1999. So back then, I mean, Amazon did exist at that point. They only sold books and nothing else. And I mean, there weren't that many people online selling stuff. No, at all. Yeah, e-com was not a thing back then. Right. So, I mean, I guess, you know, it was it was a decent idea, but it was more like being in the right place at the right time. Like, things were changing quick. And, um, yeah, I mean, just trying to do cool shit, and it ended up being well-received and just kind of turned into, like, taking on a life of its own and kind of outgrew even what I was trying to do. So I did that for a really long time, and... Um, Kind of the last issue I did was uh, we did flew out to Brazil and ended up interviewing these artists that were kind of at that time completely unknown and now have kind of grown to be these superstars. But it was like a pretty, I don't know, I mean, it was such an amazing experience being out there and seeing what we saw and going through that whole thing. We released that issue and then I kind of came back sort of lost. So I put it on hold for a little bit. And then when I decided to pick it back up, started doing books. So after putting out this first book, got approached by somebody who had just gotten hired at Nike, saw what I was doing and thought it was really, really cool. And he was trying to build a name for himself. So he kind of used what I was doing as an opportunity, kind of shop a project back to them and sort of establish himself at this new company that he was working at. And um, so he invited me to do a sneaker did the sneaker with Nike and then from there kind of grew and grew and grew again, like where they kept coming back and asking me like, you know, Hey, how'd you like to do this or do that? Inviting me to parties, sending me free clothes, free shoes and all that. And then, uh, before long, like, I mean, um, I mean, even on that collab, like I ended up publishing photos of what we did in our book. They saw it and they're like, Oh, who, you know, what agency did you use for that? And it's like, nah, man, we shot that ourselves. And they thought it looked better than the agency they hired. So they started asking me if I wanted to do some photography for them and turned into a big agency. Like, you know, over the next couple of years, started shooting more and more stuff. And so we were kind of like in the thick of it. Like it it went from like a college project that we did for fun, then kind of sidetracked me, decided to just focus on that for a few years. And then that turned into an agency, which ended up taking me through the next 15 years. So that's kind of like where the origin of 12 ounce profit came from is it started out as a little fanzine, then grew into a book publishing thing, then grew into an agency. And now I'm kind of like kind of coming full circle and putting out product again with it. Yeah. So you've circled back around, you <clears throat> turn it into, turn it into a full brand offering product and service. And yeah, I love how you've got everything structured and set up. Yeah. I mean, originally it, it did start out as product, um, and we did really well with it. The website, like I said, grew really large. Um, it was in the early days of people. I mean, 
when I started doing that, I mean, a lot of people just simply didn't have internet at home. Like, you know, a lot of people hadn't even seen the internet. We're still up on dial up and stuff like that. And um, the forum just grew and grew and grew. And that was kind of like the whole sort of predecessor to, you know, social media and all of that. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, for years, that's kind of became the focus. And it's kind of been in these last couple of years, I decided to sort of unplug from all of that and now bring it back to being a brand and repositioning from what we're doing kind of as a media platform, sort of social platform back into being a brand. Awesome. So who else did you, you've got a pretty substantial um, portfolio for your consul- on the consulting side of the house for your agency. Like who else did you besides Nike? I mean, Nike's is amazing, but who else did you work with besides uh, Nike? Yeah. I mean, the Nike thing, we sort of, like I said, I fell into it. I mean, in hindsight, I can look back and be like, holy shit, like, I can't believe we pulled that off. But, you know, that sort of fell into my lap through Nike, technically Nike Inc. They own a lot of other properties from Kohan to Converse. So we did a lot of work for them. But because we were a boutique agency based out of downtown New York, we kind of got turned on to a lot of other cool stuff as well. We happened to be, you know, a block away from the Supreme store. And on, you know, the other side of us was their offices. So I got to be friends with a lot of the guys that worked at the store. I got to be friends with James who started the company. So, um, we did a bit of work for them. Uh, did quite a lot of photography actually for their big book that they had dropped a few years back. And, um, yeah, I mean, just a lot of like skate brands, a lot of apparel brands. Um, it's kind of weird, but we actually, we were a Hasselblad based studio. We actually owned our equipment which even in New York was a fairly rare thing. And uh, through a mutual acquaintance, we ran into a situation where uh, Chopard had an emergency. They needed some photography, and they only exclusively work with this agency out in Geneva. So because of an emergency, they had to take a chance. We did some photography for them, and they were so happy with the results that we became the only authorized studio outside of Geneva to shoot Chopard. Oh, wow. So that was really cool. But um, through that, we ended up doing some stuff for Mikimoto, which is a Japanese jewelry company. So, I mean, it it is kind of bugged out because it's like, you know, one day we're shooting sneakers and just having fun. You know, it's a boutique agency in downtown New York. And then, like, the next day we have, like, you know, armed security showing up with like these like one of one jewelry pieces that are literally worth like two, three million bucks, you know, and like standing over our shoulders and we're like there with cotton gloves, like handling this whole thing, you know, like taking photos for these guys. So I bet you that was a little odd. It was a little odd. Um, <laughs> definitely a crazy thing. And, you know, like having to meet like insane deadlines because these dudes literally have to run back uptown to put the jewelry back in a vault because it's timed. So they have to make the cutoff before it actually locks for the night. Oh, yeah. So otherwise they're sitting on millions of dollars of yeah. jewelry. Over, yeah, yeah, that's in, not a in, great thing. In New York City, no one wants to be like, no. stuck holding that bag. Nope. So, yeah, I mean, um, I did that for for quite a few years until – just kind of reached a certain point where I just kind of wanted to go back to doing my own thing. You know, I mean, I enjoyed the challenges of working with big brands and feel fortunate that I got an opportunity to work with Nike, but 
you know, at the end of the day, it's like you get kind of tired of like this sort of design by committee type shit, you know, and just kind of want to go back to doing your own thing, like something a little bit more pure, a little, right. a little more directional. So I just went back to where it all began, which was 12 ounce profit. Nice. And so, so tell me about the exodus from New York. Cause you went New York to California, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to get into the whole politics necessarily right. of it, but you know, I was living in downtown New York. I, I had a good run. Um, my daughter, which is the oldest of my two kids, is kind of reaching a point where she's asking to go hang out with friends and stuff. So we kind of knew like writing was on the wall. We need to get the hell out. But the reality is that somewhere along the lines, I was doing a project for Converse down at Art Basel. And while I was down there, I was just frustrated with everything, tired of like agency life and kind of the politics of that world. And got clued into uh, a class that Chris Costa was teaching down there and managed to squeak into it. I mean, I hadn't shot guns for quite a while. I grew up, a friend of mine was range master at, at uh, one of these ranges that's actually state owned. But, um, you know, hadn't picked up a gun in ages, but whatever, reached out, talked to some, can't even remember who it was, and slid into one of his classes and had a really good time became friends with him and some of the people he was working with. And from that ended up going to another class out in Wyoming and was just starting to fly out there, you know, every now and again for one of his classes and had a good time, man. It was just like the perfect escape that I needed at that time. And it was the absolute polar opposite of life in downtown New York city. But then a weird thing kind of happened where it sort of, I don't know. It was like almost like leading two lives, you know, it's like on one side, I'm like running an agency in downtown New York. And then on the other side, I'm like running and gunning with a bunch of like military dudes out in Wyoming, <laughs> you know, and it, it became like, I don't know, a bit of a challenge to sort of reconcile that, you know, and I don't know, some of the stuff that I, some of the conversations at some of those classes that, you know, that I was privy to kind of planted some seeds that I think, sort of set the groundwork for a bit of discontent for what I was seeing back in New York. Reality is, I think, you know, I, I kind of paid my dues there. I spent my time. I was like ready for something else. But I think that experience out in Wyoming kind of ushered that along a little bit faster. Yeah, that's just south of where I live in about 40 minutes. And it, those mountains will get in your blood really, really quick. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm lucky because I got to grow. <clears throat> I got to grow up in that state, and I got to grow up just four hours east of there. And you know, got I, the first time I went to Jackson Hole, I was like, I think 11 years old. My stepdad had won at his company Christmas party had won free hotel and ski tickets at the at the for the for the village at Jackson, and we went out there when I was I think I was 11, and. I remember I'm riding in the back of the station wagon and we drove over Togety Pass and I remember him saying, okay, get ready, get ready. And as soon as we dropped down at a certain point, I think it was just past Togety Lodge, we drove around this corner and boom, there's like the Grand Teton like erupting out yeah. of the ground. And I was like just completely mesmerized by that. Like I'd never seen, you know, we didn't have mountains like that on the east side of the state, like where I live. I mean, we had like a little local mountain and a little local ski resort. But they were nothing, you know, Casper Mountain's nothing compared to the Tetons, you know, the Bridger Teton mountain range. And so seeing that monolith, you know, erupting out of the ground like that, I was just completely 
floored. And I just remember how awesome that moment was. And then I just never, and we got there and we went to the village and we checked into the hotel and, you know, I got to try skiing for the first time and that was not a great experience. And, uh, it only happened one time. Then I ended up getting on a snowboard when I was, I think 13 or 14. And that was all she wrote for that. I just stuck with snowboarding ever since. And I've skied a little bit since then. I'm more like a newborn giraffe on skis, but <laughs> I love snowboarding. And I mean, that whole mountain range there and that whole part of the state, it's just magic. And I, I love, I love the mountains and I can't get away from them. So, yeah, I mean, from jump street, when you land at that airport over there mm-hmm. and you're like, you know, it's like straight view. To right. The you're, you're right there parked right across from them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was already like, they had me sold like already from the beginning. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, New York's a type of place. You got what, probably like eight and a half, nine million people like stacked on top of each other. And then over there, suddenly it's like, you know, mm-hmm. completely sparse. So I think it was kind of like that contrast, like really, I don't know. It just, it, it just kind of like put a splinter in my brain that just kind of festered until I just had to like do something about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, living in a place like New York, there's, it's just constant noise, constant people, just activity. Like there's, there's no chance to be able to kind of really just kind of unplug. And so when you're like out there running and gunning between, you know, putting around on target, you know, as intended, staying safe, you know, and, and performing, it requires like every ounce of, at least for me, like concentration, like for that time, like you're just focused on what you're doing and you tune out the world. Yeah. It's like, it's meditative. Yeah. So at that time, that's something that I was just starving for that, you know, Mm -hmm. an opportunity to just tune the world out. And, um, and that's what I did. So every chance I got, you know, which admittedly wasn't nearly as often as I would have liked, but you know, I was flying out to Wyoming and trying to do stuff like that or flying back to Florida. You know, my parents are still down there and going out to the Everglades or, you know, going out to the gun ranges out there and just kind of trying to get away from everything. So at the tail end of, of my time in New York, I just kind of realized, like, you know what? I want to work on my own stuff again. I want to – I mean, it was kind of tough because I was so far past it, like, in terms of the life that I had built up for myself out there had, you know, big studio, big apartment, employees and all that. So it was tough to take that big step back. And I realized the only way I was going to do that is by leaving New York, which I was ready to do. So the plan at first, I was like, you know what? Like, I'm not sure I'm ready to move my kids out of downtown New York to a place like Wyoming. Like I was a little concerned about their ability to adapt to. Oh yeah. Massive culture shock. Yeah. So we ended up going to California, you know, I've got family out there, wife's got family out there and had this idea like, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to get up every morning, go surfing. And even though I'd never surfed ever in my life, but, um, it turned out to be something else. And, uh, I didn't enjoy my time out there. I was there for about a year or so and, uh, ended up kind of, it's kind of almost like, like a whole like side story, but moved into a place where. Basically, we had this dickhead neighbor, and <laughs> and he, as you often do in California, yeah. So, you know, I I wasn't sure if we we're gonna like it. So, 
rather than buy straight away, obviously I was hesitant. So we rented this place. We had, you know, one year lease with an option to renew a lease. And my neighbor, like before my first year was even up, decided to buy my house because he had outgrown his house and he wanted a gym. So, Oh, he's just going to turn your whole house into yeah, a gym and a whole, exactly. Of course. Of course. So he bought my house. You're in LA, right? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Actually, we were in uh Topanga Canyon. So yeah, <laughs> right? I think it's still LA County, but so he, he buys my house. He's freaking surfing in Costa Rica and mm -hmm. sends me an email to say like, Hey, I bought your house. Like, just so you know, like when your lease is up, I'm going to need it. And I'm like, how about we talk about this when you get back from Costa Rica? Right. So he never ends up coming back. Um, again, whole big long story, but dude, like instead has like 12 pallets of fucking stone dropped off because he's going to build a rock wall. So they're like jackhammering like all day long building this freaking So before your, your lease is up, he's already yeah, like trying so to do exactly. construction. Exactly. Okay. So I'm paying out the ass to live like on the side of a fucking mountain, live in the California dream with like, you know, a construction crew jackhammering rocks all day long. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that, that add insult to injury. We're, we're there, like, you know, finally I'm just, like, fed up. I'm like, forget it. Like, we're going to get pushed out of here no matter what. Like, I'm not going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy. He's got, like, lawyers and shit, and, like, there's no way I'm going to win against this dude. So um, we go and we complain to his personal assistant because he's not there. She's taking care of his house. And I'm like, hey, you got to stop this. Like, there's no way I can deal with this shit, you know? And she's like, oh, no, we, we got to finish this before him and his family come back because we can't disturb him. And I'm like, you got to be freaking kidding me. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, they're like, I get <clears> on, can say fuck. It's okay. <laughs> I get on Instagram. We're on I'm, the internet. <laughs> I get on Instagram to figure out where the hell this guy is. And it turns out that this dude's freaking at cons winning a humanitarian award while jackhammering the shit out of these stones while pushing me and my family out, you know, because he bought my house to turn it into a gym. Oh, fantastic. So that that was like like the cherry on top of the California experience. But <laughs> you know, but then again I, I mean I I can't complain because that's the whole reason I ended up in Montana. Mm. You know, is I needed an excuse and that was the excuse. It was the perfect excuse. So actually at that point, you know, I was looking towards Wyoming, you know, started looking around and Oh, you did look down in Wyoming. Yeah, I did. Uh where were you guys looking at? Um, like just outside of Jackson hole, you know, yeah. like Chris was out there and a few other friends were out there. And, uh, so we're taking a look around there, but yeah, Chris lived just right around the corner, down the street and around the corner for me for a while. Really? Yeah. That's cool. I helped him move into his house. <laughs> awesome. So I know exactly where that is. Yeah. Yeah. We drank some beers and I helped him move into his house and yeah. So Mike was right there too. Yeah, Mike actually lived up the street from me. Mike of we're talking about Mike of Third K Nine, Third I K Nine fame, who I'm going to hopefully get on the podcast. He's a difficult individual to deal with. He's an amazing human, but very stubborn about his privacy. So I don't know. I'm going to try and hopefully talk him into coming on because he <laughs> trains dogs that do things that I've never seen any other dogs do. So. Uh, I want to talk to him about that, but, uh, yeah, all of us, all, all of us lived in very close, like stones throw proximity to each other for a long time. Um, that whole Valley is great. Jackson is kind of, you know, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard area because you have, I mean, massively expensive real estate all in and all around Jackson. Like, and even if you're like trying, like 
there's a rental market, but you have to have, you know, four to six roommates to be able to afford, you know, the $4,000, you know, rent in, um, in Wilson or in, you know, downtown Jackson, East Jackson has gotten extremely crazy. Like just in the last three years, like property has doubled there. When I left to go to San Francisco in 16 to go to school and work on my design degree, I came back just this last winter a year ago and a house that I had looked at that was like 750 was now like being offered at 1.4. Yeah. And I'm just like, wow, shit doubled in the last few years that I've been gone. And so, um, you have your choice if you, if you don't want to, you know, pay that kind of money. Um, if it's not in the budget or you don't want to pay that kind of money to live in and around Jackson, um, you got two choices. You can drive over the pass and you can go to Victor, Idaho, um, which is what a large majority of people do, um, you know, and you've got like a 16 mile commute. You got to drive over this huge mountain pass, you know, pretty much the Southern tip of the Teton mountain range to get into Jackson. Um, or you drive down snake river Canyon to Alpine junction where I live to, you know, live down in Southern, the Southern part down there. And I, I don't know. I think that's more preferred. You get out of paying the, you know, you're a little bit further away from Jackson, but you get out of paying those state, those Idaho state ta income tax rates, which are not great. Yeah. I mean, we knew we wouldn't be like literally in downtown Jackson, but right. you know, like I fell in love with the train, like I already knew a couple of people there. So it seemed like, you know, the obvious choice to right. me. So what but, steered um, you away? What steered you back? What steered you up north to uh, here to Montana? Oh, it was like once we started really like kind of digging below the surface and like you start hearing like these rumors like, oh, all the California billionaires pushed out the millionaires. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, prices are through the roof. And um, yeah, I mean, in the price range we were looking, we just weren't finding what we were hoping for. And uh, my wife just started looking around like, you know, getting on Google and researching like old cowboy towns or like, you know, like right. touristy spots like that. And uh, she came up with a bunch of lists and articles and stuff. And, you know, whitefish kept coming up on this, on these lists. So she started looking at properties out here and ended up finding some, basically the house that we're in. I mean, not basically, she found the house that we're in and it looked amazing online and, we were both kind of like skeptical. It's like, oh man, like there's no way like that this house is as nice as it's going to be. But also the fact that we just found this right away, like it just seemed like too easy, you know? Right. Too good to be true. Exactly. So, you know, I was in a real good place at the time. I'd landed a huge contract with a big brand, you know, I was making good money at the time and I knew I wanted to buy something. So it's like, fuck it. Let's go out there, check it out. And um, so, you know, packed the car up grabbed the kids hauled ass up here checked it out and the town was amazing and you know we're driving to the property and we're like man this property's gonna suck it's like next to a nuclear dump or some shit and you know there's no way it's gonna be what they're like showing online and fact is is when we got there it was like even better it was better than what you saw on the internet yeah so it's like oh shit like this whole thing is too easy and everyone's like oh you know like you never find like the first house is not not it you know like hearing people look for years to find their place you know and uh we found it so turned out to be like an amazing property the the guy selling it's the guy who built it and did all this special stuff it's all reclaimed lumber you know like 
dude literally like knew how many nails he'd hammered into the second floor, you know, like, yeah, this place up. is gorgeous. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So yeah. But, um, the good flip, job, Christy. Yeah. <laughs> good job, Christy. The flip side of it is the guy was a gigantic pain in the ass to deal with because he was so emotionally attached to the house. Yeah, that happens. Yep. So, you know, and likewise, I had no real idea of, you know, like if what he was asking was even reasonable, if it was high, low, like I wasn't familiar. I mean, I'd been in New York City for 15 years, so I knew that real estate really well. Didn't know what the deal was out here. And so I was just kind of like flying blind for the most part. Reality, I didn't even have like kind of all my ducks in a row as far as buying because I was expecting that at least, you know, have to look for a little while. Yeah, you weren't expecting to find something so awesome so quick. Right. Yeah. So whatever, we we uh, did some quick homework on what the situation was and just started haggling. And then uh, I think it was like three or four months of like offers going back and forth and arguing over this or that. And then uh, the house ended up falling into escrow with somebody else. So we're like, ah, oh, shit, you know, like what now? And Christy was obviously devastated, my wife. So trying to figure out what was going on. And I don't know, for some reason, I just felt like, you know what? Like, this isn't over. Like, I know we're going to do this. Like, I was having like these freaking crazy dreams about living in this house. And uh, sure enough, like, I think it was like two months go by. And then the broker calls us like laughing and crying on the phone. She couldn't even get the words out. And she's like, hey, like, he wants to talk to you. Like, it fell out of escrow. He really wants to talk to you. So, you know got on a, a call, had some conversation about it and basically met halfway and managed to pull the house off. So nice. That's, that's how we ended up in uh, Northwest Montana. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm glad that it happened because this place <laughs> is awesome. So. Yeah. And I mean, it's just dumb luck that a lot of other people ended up moving up here. And, uh, you know, part of also like what, you know, obviously my wife was in love with the house, but part of what kind of tipped her over was like, you know, across the street we had some big hedge fund like billionaire guy like bought that property and she read an article we were saying like you know like he made all his money in california but his heart was in montana like right. whitefish so he bought this property and um i mean he's a good dude like he's not from here but he's done a lot for the community he's raised a lot of money like bankrolled a lot of stuff out here good and he's done good yeah i like it when people come into town and they're good good stewards of the community and you know even though they're not from here or not locally born and bred and they do they do good good things that's that's what i like to see it's a good thing but yeah i mean uh pretty radical change going from like the massive hustle, hustle and bustle right massive radical literally we're, we're, we're living in like soho like around the corner from the apple store and like you know used to like 24-hour bodegas and taking the train everywhere and you know, you literally like buying your groceries on your way home from work every day right. to, you know, out here where we have like freaking bears walking around the yard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a big change from like <laughs> dropping by the local market two blocks from the penthouse to <laughs> now you got bears in the yard. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it was a complete lifestyle change, but that's what I wanted. So, you know, went from you know, doing brand consultancy work for Fortune 100 companies to, like, you know, free-ranging chickens out in Montana. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So what uh, – so so now you've been here for how many years? Um, Actually, it'll be three years early next year. And so you fully – so you, you came in here and you 
fully dove into back into your brand, 12 ounce profit. And I remember when we met, you were just starting to ramp things up and you, I think, I don't think you'd been in here for very long and you would just, you're just starting to get like the, the garage and the guest house renovated into a studio and a, you know, workspace. And so, so yeah, I mean, I basically shut down the agency I had in New York to focus on my own brand, came out here, started working on it. I mean, I knew supply chain and vendor sourcing was a bit of a challenge just from all the brand consultancy work I was doing previous, but, um, or a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you're up here in Northern Montana where like, there's no, well, I knew I wasn't gonna, like, I wasn't trying to manufacture or produce anything locally. I, I didn't expect that they were going to have that sort of business in place, that infrastructure in place here. The year that I was out in LA, you know, through colleagues in the industry and my own understanding of what was going on, I had vetted out a whole bunch of vendors, like specifically screen printing vendors. Right. A lot of them are in Southern California. And, um, you know, narrowed it down to a short list of guys that were supposed to be like the best of the best. And that's who I started with. So when I moved up here, started focusing on my own brand, putting, you know, some concepts together, working on some designs and sending them out to, you know, vendors in Southern California and just kind of very quickly found myself just bummed out by the shit they were sending me. You know, when did so, you, when did you officially relaunch and push the go button back on? When did you get the website back up and and push the Well, the website was always up. Like, even when I had the agency, like, I was running it on the side. I had, like, a little team that okay, was kind so of So it never died it. and went away or, like, went into temporary yeah. retirement. I mean, it, it did in the sense that, you know, like, 12-ounce profit had built up to the point where we are just doing massive traffic. Then that was obviously in the era before social media. You know, then, you know, first MySpace, then facebook and then later instagram comes along and like all along it's like kind of like taking taking little bits of market share you know some of that traffic just starting to drop off reality is like i'd already transitioned from my own brand to running the agency and that was my focus that's what i expected to do the rest of my life so being honest with you i kind of left it you know on the wayside a bit and kind of through my own negligence, let it kind of like begin to die out. And over time, just kind of continue to lose traffic. And, you know, we moved our focus over to social media and platforms like Facebook and Instagram. You know, at that time, I wasn't putting out much product. And, you know, I mean, I was paying my bills by the creative services and brand consultancy work I was doing. And um, so... But I don't fault you for that because you had a very impressive client list. So, like, I can see where that would have been you know, an easy, an easy choice when you're like landing whales like Nike and, you know, some of the other clients that you've worked with and doing stuff for Supreme and Chapard and all these, like, I can see where, where that was an easy choice from a, you know, from a business standpoint. Yeah. I mean, obviously like the work is sexy. It's like, you know, when Nike steps to you and they start sending you stuff and inviting you to parties and stuff like that, you kind of get caught up in like the romance of what it is. I mean, I grew up like a Nike head, like, you know, like lusting after certain sneaker releases they were doing. And then suddenly like they're sending me shit like nobody can get and, you know, writing big checks for work that I was doing that, you know, that I enjoyed doing to be honest with you. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah, so, so if you're loving doing what you're doing and, and you've got an amazing, amazing client that's, you know, taking care of your, taking care of good care of you, then there's, yeah, I can completely see why you're, Right. Where your brand like got put on the you know on the on the burner yeah so that that's kind of what it became and then uh you know at a certain point i just kind of like missed sort of that autonomy like just kind of missed being able to build something from nothing and see it through all the way and not have like people kind of step in and you know and kind of poke and prod and switch the direction of it and um you know that kind of overlapped with where I was at mentally as far as my time in New York. You know, I, I kind of, I had my fill, like I enjoyed it for a long time, loved that city, but I was at a point where I was just, you know, all the stupid jackhammering and cabs and tourists were like just really kind of grinding on me and just kind of wanted space, you know, wanted to just kind of go back to exploring like my own ideas and like my own projects. And I knew that with the cost of living, the cost of doing business out there, that there was little chance that I could realize the vision that I had. There was just too much stacked up against you. I mean, a place like New York, it's like even opening up a retail space, it's like you got to have a 10 year plan and a bunch of financial backers. So I knew that I was going to have to step away from all that to kind of pursue my own thing. And then, like I said, I mean, my, my kids were kind of getting to an age where they wanted a little bit more independence and I wasn't ready to let them kind of wander the city. And, you know, had some conversations with my wife and just sort of realized, like, you know what, we had a good run. Like, live life once. We, you know. Yeah, it's time to exhale. Yeah, we did our thing. Now it's time to try something else. So we thought, like, all right, you know, some beach life in California could be it. it turned out to not be it. But, um it kind of circled back to where my head really was at that, you know, to be honest, I just didn't have the balls to move straight out to Wyoming from New York. I need a little bit of like, kind of like that, that sort of transition. Yeah, you need of, like a transitional buffer in the form of a jackhammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, um, you know, I mean, I don't know, man. I, I think at the end of the day, like things happen for a reason and what's meant to be is meant to be. And we got pushed into a life up here in Montana and, you know, I couldn't be more thankful for the way it ended up. So got here, you know, started focusing on my own stuff and then just kind of began running into a whole other bunch of hurdles. You know, like I said, I mean, sent off a bunch of shirts to be printed, like just wasn't happy with what was coming back. And so at a certain point, I kind of took another step back and evaluated the situation, you know, called around, spoke to a bunch of people in the industry that I was working within and everyone's, you know, just hated who they were printing with as well. I had nothing but, you know, bad things to say about like their own vendors. And so I was like, you know what, like, all right, there's an opportunity there, you know, like began kind of thinking it through, obviously, like from a business standpoint, being as diversified as you can be, like makes some sense, particularly if you can be diversified yet have businesses that are diverse but complementary so i saw like all right if i'm going to work on my own brand and i have a production facility like that gives me a massive strategic advantage so that's what i chose to do so for basically put my own stuff on pause for a year spent that year like researching like what you know what was needed what what equipment to get like how to pull this together and um, started importing equipment, you know, from Europe, Japan, a lot of stuff here in the U.S. And put together a facility to be able to 
really put together the best quality. You know, the, I, I mean, I had set my bar super high for what I wanted and um, did everything I could to pull a facility together that could meet that, knowing that if I could do that, that I could probably help out a lot of other brands as well. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the work you've got, I mean, first of all, just coming in here and getting to know you, um, thanks to, you know, Mike over at Third Eye K9, like, so glad I got the opportunity to come over here and, like, you know, get that introduction. You, I was super impressed with, like, what you had going on because it's just from my own entrepreneurial journey after my last combat deployment in Afghanistan in 2010, like, you just kind of have to, like, gut it out and figure out shit as you go, and you have to have a tenacity and a drive to do that. And that's where a lot of like young entrepreneurs that don't understand like what it, what it truly means to like problem solve and, you know, figure things out as you go, why there's such a high, you know, attrition rate with, you know, young businesses, you know, people have a great idea, they have a great vision, um, but then they get bogged down in the execution. And so then like watching you grow, you know, bring your, you know, brand back to life and, and solve the problems that you've solved. I mean, <laughs> We have great phone conversations all the time where you're like, oh man, check this problem set out that I just, that I just yeah. had to deal with. And so like your, your drive to, you know, solve problem, you know, complex problem sets and like, you know, build, build the dream is super inspiring. It's impressive. Um, and then just like your attention to detail and your quality of work that you put out, like I've like, I've been super nothing but impressed. So, uh, I remember like, you know, all of the, all the problems that, you know, that I faced trying to figure things out and just, you know, being completely lost, having no business background, having no design background. And, you know, to kind of caveat on what you're saying, the ability to be self, you know, contained and self-reliant is like, what well, the whole reason I went back to, you know, I used my GI bill and went back to design school. Cause I had been doing lots of design consulting, you know, for bigger brands. Like I've done stuff for Magpul. I've done stuff for, you know, Surefire done stuff for Smith optics for Audi gear and for like a bunch of other bigger brands. And, and, uh, you know, it was all conceptual. It was all, you know, me getting plugged in and basically bringing my end user experience to the table, but not ever getting like you're talking about where, you know, you're looking, you're working with these larger creative agencies and like people just come in and stick their fingers in the Kool-Aid and fuck your soup all up yeah. and you got to, you know, that's your client. You got to deal with that. And I had to deal with the same experiences. And then as time went on and my, you know, I developed my little design firm, Orion design group looking, you know, like we got lots of, you know, OEM work from people. But the problem was, is I would, you know, have to subcontract out the things that I didn't know how to do from a design perspective, from a technical design aspect. And so then what would happen is we would get lashed to somebody else's timetable. We would get lashed to somebody else's cost schedule. And then I would have to adjust my margin based off of like fair market value for what I could charge for that work. And sometimes we would lose money on projects and piss our clients off because we were chained to somebody else's execution timeline and their, you know, and their, their work queue. And so, I immediately, you know, realized that this is not going to be a long-term solution and that I needed to shore up my technical acumen. So that's why I went back to school and, you know, now having that knowledge and, you know, getting the technical knowledge that I needed, I'm, you know, working on doing the same thing. You, you know, what you've created here with like, you know, getting my own, you know, equipment in house, being able to do my own short run production, being able to do all those things, super 
super valuable because it saves you time and it saves you money and time is money. Yeah. I mean, like, I think at the end of the day, I got lucky in terms of my start with Nike, you know, is I was working on something that, you know, I think was cool. It got noticed by somebody that needed to sort of plant that flag, like at the company, get noticed. So yeah, he basically uses you for like a creative springboard. Right. Yeah. But what you're describing for us was actually the inverse of that is like a lot of the time they would hire agencies that would then subcontract to us. You know, like at the end of the day, it's like when you have a client that big, like a Fortune 100 company, they want to know that 24 hours a day they can make a phone call, get somebody on, you know, get somebody on the phone and get a status update. Or if they send one of their people out that they're going to be met at the door and they're going to have their hand held through everything that's going on. So it's not even a matter. I mean, like, you know, kind of put it in perspective, like we, uh, back when Lance Armstrong was one of their star athletes, like they're launching Live Strong. And what people don't kind of realize, like, is how much money actually goes into bringing that product to market. So, you know, they had a bunch of prototype you know, apparel product that they were getting ready to launch under Livestrong. And um, literally they're paying people from overseas to like courier this in person because they're not willing to put this like through like even next day air, like FedEx, you know, it's like literally being hand couriered over. So oh, they're like paying people to like get on a plane, have the package, yeah, fly it, it back. Cannot, it cannot leave that person's hand. You oh, know? wow. Okay. So, by the time like it gets over like to campus, they're calling us, they need, you know, product shots for like PR editorial. And they're telling us like, listen, like this product cannot leave here. So we need you to pack up your studio and come to campus and shoot this product. So it's like literally like, you know, three days worth of work, but we have 24 hours to do it. So they need to clear with like, like, you know, Nike's campus is like a self-contained city. Like they have like their own oh, police stories, force yeah. and shit, you know? So they have to reach out to security, you know, and get us like 24 hour access, which is all this like crazy security clearance. And like, they're willing to pay for us to literally pack up all our computers and everything and fly out to Beaverton because at the end of the day, like, yeah, maybe the actual like literal cost of that sampling is, you know, a couple thousand bucks, but the process like between all the media that they had to buy, you know, the advertising, the PR, all that editorial, like they've spent tens of millions of dollars to bring that product to market. And if that product gets fucked up or lost or something like that, like they're fucked. They're, they're out tens of millions of dollars. Like it has to be done according to what, you know, they need, but they can't afford to make any mistakes. So they have us go out to campus to shoot the stuff. In the end, we actually didn't end up doing, they couldn't get the 24 hour clearance that we needed because the timeline was so short. We had to shoot literally in three shifts, which means bringing out multiple teams to work 24 hours a day to get through that. Oh, wow. It was only one day. And yeah, I know we could have stayed awake for it, but it was massively demanding work, you know? Right. So that's kind of the way they work. But when you factor in what, like, you know, their agency of record is Wyden Kennedy, like what Wyden Kennedy would charge for something like that versus what we would charge, like, there's obviously a huge spread there. Yeah. So what ends up happening is like Wyden Kennedy can't afford you know, or Nike rather, they can't afford to drop the ball. So they hire like a huge agency like Wyden Kennedy, you know, these big like multinational agencies. And those dudes subcontract out to agencies like us 
knowing that they have the resources that if we drop the ball, they can pick it up another way. So that's kind of why those types of brands don't usually go direct to the small agencies like us, you know, but what we were exposed to is like, okay, at first we were hired to do creative services. You know, we were one of the few photo studios that was doing Nike work. In fact, for, you know, I mean, we worked for Nike for 15 years and for a handful of those years, like every photo that got released for PR editorial, as well as their website that didn't have a person in it, we shot, you know, so all the sneakers and apparel and stuff. Um, we are most specifically tasked with their tier zero program, which is, you know, key doors and key cities, like their sort of flagship, you know, or conceptual boutiques, like the coolest of the cool stuff. That's what we got to work on. Part of it was because of where we were coming from, how we were positioned with our own stuff. In fact, we were a small boutique agency out of downtown New York. But that's the kind of work that we did. And then over time, like, they saw that we sort of had a talent for kind of, kind of like directional communication, you know, like, like that's kind of the niche that we found is that business seems to have spread from being like, you know, like very wide, like lateral, like massive distribution to being more vertical oriented business models. So when it comes to vertically oriented, I guess like the analogy would be is like, you know, like when it comes to marketing, you can like come up with a generic communication, cast a wide net and, and get your sticks. Yeah. yeah, Get your market share from that. Over time, they began to realize like, Hey, if we break those budgets down into like, you know, five different, you know, bits of communication that are each directional, that our return on investment is higher, you know, that it's not as wide a net, obviously, like we're going like very, like, you know, very narrow, but we're penetrating super deep. They're seeing better returns on that. So that worked in my favor because never good at like, at massive scale, like everything we did was always super directional. So in our space, in terms of like the whole street art and like the graffiti art kind of side of it, based out of New York, we had a lot of experience with what we were doing. They're really excited because some of the books we were doing, they were, you know, for all intents and purposes, like books on graffiti or books on street art. But the way we were packaging, the way we were designing things, the content that we were doing, like opened up to a much broader audience, like, you know, we noticed after a little while, like most of the people buying our books weren't even people in that community. It was, you know, graphic designers, people in the fashion industry were buying our books and, you know, using them as references for their work or putting them on their bookshelf, their collections or whatever. So they liked the fact that we were keeping things like very authentic, but that we were able to like kind of open it up to a broader audience. And they wanted us to apply that same sort of thing to what they were doing by doing like, kind of more opportunities for directional communication, directional marketing strategy. So we got looped into not just providing the go-to-market assets for a product release, but rather kind of beginning to have a say or at least a seat at the table in developing some of the strategy for some of what they were doing, particularly for the product releases that were occurring in downtown New York. You know, that's, that's impressive. How long, how long, so how long did that relationship go for? Uh, about 15 years. Oh, wow. Okay. So the whole time you were in New York, you were, you were doing stuff at Nike. Yeah. yeah. I mean, our agency started like yeah. with Nike. It, it was like, you know, I was doing my own thing. They came to me, they, you know, again, started sending me free shoes and inviting me to parties and stuff. And, you know, we did, they, you know, through that person, we, um, did a collaboration 
they saw our photos, compared them to their photos, and then suddenly they're like, hey, like, who's doing your stuff? Because it looks better than our stuff. They knew what they were paying for it. And to be honest with you, the first time they stepped to me, they're like, hey, how much do you charge, you know, for what's your day rate for studio photography? I didn't even know what the hell to tell them. Like, I'd never charge anybody anything for that, you know? <laughs> like, like, oh, hold on. Let me get let me get a hold of my creative director and we'll jump the quote <laughs> for it. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I had an expertise in, uh, you know, in pre-production, print publishing. Mm -hmm. It's what I did, um, starting with, you know, the graffiti fanzine that we did. And then right. later on doing the, the books. And... You know, for a while, um, I was a consultant for a lot of brands, a lot of the apparel and footwear brands in New York in terms of print buys because, you know, they might spend 80 grand for a photo shoot and then send it off to a printer that says you can do it and it comes back looking like shit basically because a vendor will take on anything even if he has to outsource all of it. So there was like this huge sort of disconnect between the creative process and the production process. It's like the dudes operating the press don't know shit about design and the dudes designing stuff don't know shit about production. So there's that huge gap that exists in between. But because I was doing my own zine at the time and publishing my own books, I got, you know, the crash course on production, but I was also designing my own books. So I, I kind of learned both sides of that. So when it came to these certain clients, like, you know, they're spending huge money on these photo shoots and it's coming back like shit. And it's because of that disconnect. So I'd go up, you know, go to these production facilities and ask them for impositioning guides and take a look at like, okay, well, you know, we have this photo that's like a two page spread, but it's imposition on opposite ends of the sheet. And so I can dial in the color on both knowing that when it's actually folded and bound, that it's going to be like opposing pages and make sure that the color crosses over consistently. So you have a dude in a red jumpsuit that takes up like two pages, the red is consistent on both sides, but then it goes a step further. Like, a lot of them are like urban brands. So you have these dudes that are like West Indian black guys, you know, like dark skin, but a lot of red in that skin tone wearing a red jumpsuit. So what ha ends up happening is the red in the jumpsuit on the print process, like as it's being printed, you're going from the head of the sheet to the tail of the sheet. It ends up contaminating the skin tone and making them look almost sunburned. Mm. So you have to compensate for that, you know? So you go in pre-press, you pull all that red out so on screen it looks like the dude's like a ghost but then when it contaminates in the production process it brings the reds back up and it looks normal so these are like little things that like production dudes they understand that but they don't understand the design side and the designers don't know anything about that yeah that's a huge that's a massive bridge to build right there and right so that like that's a lot of like what i did before we got to that point was like i understand production you know and um yeah, so, it's, it's super valuable knowledge, and <clears throat> I run into it all the time with, uh, you know, doing design on my side with, uh, you know, having a lot of experience as an end user, and then also having, uh, you know, an industrial design background, and then also, you know, understanding production and materials and process, like, helps me a lot when I go in and start trying to help a client out that wants you know, a specific thing and they might not have any, you know, they might have a little bit of design experience, but they don't have any production experience. So I like go in there and they like look at their design and they're like, what do you think of this? And I take a look at it and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And we start peeling, you know, peeling it apart. And I start looking at their, you know, their basic order materials list and some of their other stuff and realize real fast, like, because I have a good knowledge of also production procedures and materials, like, 
what's possible and what's not possible or what's going to be super experience or I'm sorry, super expensive and, and not uh, very manufacturable uh, or mass producible. So, you know, it has that, having that same, you know, line of knowledge that you're talking about with understanding several facets of the process, it makes you a better, makes you way better at what you do. And you can really go in like I've, I've gone in and I've like designed circles around guys that don't have, you know, a lot of other experience of things other than design down further down the, you know, f- further down the tra- the, the product chain, you know, right. what it takes to take a product from ideation to actual sell through on the product, like, or an existing product, like everybody gets caught in their little like channels or their little, you know, their, their little fiefdoms, um, or, you know, get caught on their apple cart. And if they don't know what's going on further down the chain, you know, that, that level of communication is super valuable. And, you know, I would say there's companies that really have their shit together with like how to shore that up. And then there's companies that I've been super shocked that are, that are big, that I've consulted for that have stovepipe communication and their knowledge is, you know, not great from one part of the process to the next. And, you know, it's super valuable to have that knowledge and be able to provide that value for the, for your client. Yeah. So when it came to like the photography side, like, you know, I'm not formally trained as a photographer. What I saw is the camera is a tool and I can figure out a tool. What I knew was like the kind of conceptual side of what I was trying to do, you know, Mm -hmm. which translated into the production side of it. So, you know, after a while, like began to see like, all right, these photographers, it's like, fuck, like they're not even hardly doing anything. It's like the assistant is like, they're like coordinating everything, even doing test shots. They're like coming along, looking through a viewfinder, making sure the composition is correct. And then it's like, they're barely even, you know, putting their finger on the trigger and firing a shot off. So, you know, we figured out, you know, at that point, like, all right, well, I'm on set watching these photo shoots happen. Like I know I can figure out the camera. So I started figuring out the camera first with our own stuff, with what I was trying to do and managed to dial in the results that I wanted because I knew the production side. And, you know, what Nike ended up seeing was, you know, again, through the same guy, like they saw some of the the wet sheets, like, you know, actual printed proofs that I was receiving and were impressed by that. And so I took photos, you know, did my photos of the collab that we did and they came out solid. But they were super impressed by it, and they were wondering who the hell did it. And so when they found it, it was us. It was like, all right, well, you know, let's talk. Let's see what we can do. And the truth of the matter is, is like for the first while, I mean, probably the first year or so, like we were just taking photos in exchange for free product. Like I was just like, holy shit, Nike's like wants to work with me. And right, you're you know, so psyched on on Nike. Oh yeah, yeah. man. And I don't like, blame you. And they're literally like, I mean, at one point they sent me a pallet of Air Force Ones. You know, like <laughs> a whole pallet. Yeah, a whole pallet. And it's like like ridiculous amount of shoes, like all the coolest product, like, you know, gift cards for Nike ID and Nike Town and this and that. And you're going to parties and private dinners and shit. And then um they they reached a certain point where they were like in a crunch where like, you know, one of their agencies like just couldn't fucking do something. So they're like, hey, like we've got this big budget to work with. Like, can you do it? Like, we're jammed up. Can you do it? And I was like, fuck yeah. Like, you know, no problem at all. What's your budget? Let me do Yes, I can do that. So I did it and that like kind of got our foot in the door. And that was like back actually um, 
it was in 2007. So when 2008 rolled around and we had that kind of like that, that weird financial crash, Crunch, yeah. um, suddenly all these big agencies that are super top heavy, kind of like topple over and Nike. Folded. Yeah. So like Nike is kind of like, they have to reduce budgets and shit because they're getting hit hard too, but they still want to get the same amount of work out the door. So suddenly, you know, we're getting that opportunity, even though we don't have somebody, uh, you know, that can answer the phone 24 seven or, you know, some hot receptionist to meet like one of their reps at the door and walk them through whatever it is that we're supposed to be doing. They took a chance on us. So we ended up getting a lot of like good work out of that. And because we were able to deliver, then we got like more and more work and it sustained for quite a while. And then through the process of delivering these creative assets, like all the go-to-market stuff they were trying to do, then they started asking, you know, we're, you know, either on email chains or in meetings talking about like the product itself and how they're going to bring it to market. So I'd throw ideas out there and kind of pitch into the conversation and some of it resonated. And then, you know, then they started asking me more and more like, hey, how would you do this? Or, you know, you have any ideas for that? So got deeper into that side of it. And then over time, of course, like big company, they have fairly high turnover. We ended up being kind of that thread of consistency through a lot of it. So like, it's like, oh man, like, how'd you guys launch that one product? And like, everyone that was involved in it was gone except us. So we're like, oh, this is what we did. And this is how we should do this. And so like, we played a bigger role, like in kind of like the consultancy side of it. Right. And so that kind of opened up a whole other kind of a whole other world to what we were doing. And I mean, like I said, I mean, it, it was, it was awesome money, particularly like since like the whole thing was unexpected from the very beginning. And, you know, you start staffing out and you have like, you know, cool fucking space in downtown and a cool loft and, and so on and so forth. And like build up like this big expense and like, yeah, I mean, we made a lot of money, but what I began to kind of realize over, you know, a couple of years, like the more money you make, the more money you spend making that money, right. you know? And, um, at the same time, like I began kind of really seeing like, you know, like it, my role at least went from being like, you know, a creative director, you know, helping execute some of the photography work, kind of helping them strategize, you know, ideate, like come up with some of the talking points that were built into the product that was being developed to being more kind of like playing politics, you know, kind of shuffling emails, like shuffling relationships and just kind of keeping the whole thing like moving forward, you know, especially again, like as they're having turnover, like a big thing in the corporate world is like some new dude like replaces the old dude and whoever the old dude used, like they want to start from scratch. Right. Yeah. They want to make their, they want to make their name. They want to put exactly. their, they want to put their thumbprint on it. They, well, what it comes down to ultimately is that they don't want to share the success of whatever they're working on with anybody else. So if they use a vendor that their predecessor used, then there's always going to be like the naysayers are like, Oh, well, yeah, those, you know, that agency rocked it last time they rocked it this time. Like you didn't really do shit. So, yeah. you know, the protocol is like, all right, come in, clean house, bring in all my own people. And it just got, it, I just got tired of it. It's man. the same thing on the government side of the house. When you're doing government contracting, you're working with like a certain force mod or a certain program shop and you have a great relationship there. Well, those guys rotate out like every two to three years and you may have like a great relationship. You may execute some great product for the, you know, for the guys um, and be, you know, 
have your, your customers super happy. And it's this exact same thing. Like they will rotate out new team of guys will come in and you will have to go rebuild that relationship all over again. And then there's the you know possibility that like, it doesn't matter how good you build a relationship. doesn't matter how good your product is. Like if they're a fanboy of like when they were on a team and they're operating and they liked your competitor's product more or only had experience to your, your, your competitor's product. And then all of a sudden you are trying to, you know, work with them on a certain project that they have a requirement for, they will purposely, you know, shove you in the closet and not care. And, you know, it, your life becomes really hard. And then, it, and, and that's happened to me before. And I've, I've been in, had the experience of like, I have to sit and wait that person out for them to rotate out. So I'm like, okay, cool. Don't talk to that particular unit for, you know, the next two to three years because yeah. you're not going to get anything done. You're just not. Yeah. I mean, I suck at the politics side of mm. it. Like I, I've always, so do I. I've always believed like, you know what, like judge me on like the strength of my work and yeah, my, my product and my execution. Yeah. Yeah. And the quality of my character. Yep. You know, so I mean, at least as far as Nike went, like, you know, their senior staff is amazing. Like, you know, I had a personal relationship with Mark Parker who just recently stepped down as uh what CEO of Nike Inc. You know, oh, nice, like, yeah. Yeah, so I mean he he's a great guy like you know everyone at that at that tier is amazing but at the end of the day like those aren't the guys involved in the day to day. No. The middle management people are who will yeah, ruin your life in relative short order. So I I I got tired of that and you know I was trying to decide what to do and ended up actually I mean the kind of like the last who for us was uh Timberland came along. Um, they were jammed up on something. They reached out. They asked me to submit an RFP, which is mm -hmm. a request for proposal. Yeah. I went in and I was just like, listen, like, you know, I can go through the motions and do what you're asking, or I can just tell you the truth of how this shit works, which is RFPs <laughs> is like, you know, we can throw shit at the wall till something sticks and you cut me a check. Or I can tell you straight up that, it's all meaningless. And if you keep, you know, if you keep going through those same motions, you're going to still get the same bullshit work, regardless of what agency you work for, you know, or work with, um, because it's, it's bullshit. Like none of them know anything about anything. Like they're just recycling old ideas to multiple clients and throwing shit at the wall until something sticks. I was like, what I propose we do is, you know, if you really want to fix this problem, give me, give me a contract. Like, let me come in there for a year let me audit your company. Like, let me pick through your portfolio. Let me understand your heritage. Yeah. Understand you know? the brand. Yeah. Yeah. Truly understand your brand. And then at that point, let's start putting a real plan together. So. And they liked that. They loved it. Um, I was like, you know, I mean, I think I could only have said that because at the point I was at, sort of at a point where I kind of just didn't give a fuck anymore. Right. You know, I was ready to just kind of step away from all of it and work mm -hmm. on my own shit. And, you know, it, it was a bit of a Hail Mary. I, I, I threw that at them and then threw like a fucking hefty fee to go along with it. Right. And I don't know. I think it, it's honestly like I sort of like rocked them off balance and they're like, you know what? Like what you're saying actually makes sense. You know, called me up for a second meeting, answered a bunch of questions and they're like, all right, let's do this. Yeah. Certain, certain like at certain times, t timing's everything. Certain times like brutal truth can be a huge win. And other times, like brutal truth, will not be a huge one. It'll sink your ship. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, the so Timberland is set up 
obviously differently than Nike. Like they have a parent company and then they have a bunch of brands, which they consider like their properties. Like the president of the company is basically a liaison between the property and mm -hmm. the parent company. So in their corporate hierarchy, like their brand is run by a GM, general manager. That's the position that's basically running the day-to-day -day of the brand. Mm -hmm. So Timberland at that time had this woman that was just a powerhouse. I mean, she was like five foot nothing, but, you know, just – She's a wrecking she, ball. Wrecking ball, yeah. She came in like just – I mean – she really ran that place. She had everyone's respect, just an amazing, amazing woman, um, just super fucking sharp about everything she did. So she's the one that ended up hiring us. And even though we were hired to establish a tier zero program, you know, basically creating an energy program, which is, you know, the template that Nike uses to bring all their like hype shit to market. Right. It's called energy. We, we were hired to bring an energy pro or to assemble an energy program for Timberland. And she realized pretty quickly that in order to do it effectively, she needed a lot of budget and that in order to acquire that budget, she needed to build a business case. So I'm not a finance dude. I'm not a business dude. You know, I mean, the sales that we did, we did like our own distribution with the books and the zine back in the day, but like, that's not my forte. Right. But she tasked us with helping her create, you know, like a business argument for what she was trying to do with this tier zero program. So it became like working backwards where she wanted us to go through like, you know, a couple of years worth of historical sales and help them understand the numbers they were seeing and like put that whole thing together, go through their product portfolio and like help them segment it. They're in the middle of cleaning up the market, which was basically like their I don't know. I think they were like trying to lob off like 30% of their distribution, like the doors they had open selling their product. So their so, brand was kind of in a little bit of a mess at the time. It was in a mess. Yeah. In fact, I would argue that they're kind of still in that position now. Yeah. Um, so anyways, um, she wanted me to help her like put together like an argument, like, you know, this to, to go through all of this stuff. And, um, she had to have known that that wasn't necessarily what we did. I mean, everything up to that point was very directional, like very niche, very specific, you know, like communication, very specific product and strategy, um, dealing with like a very like narrow segment of their customer base, like a very specific demographic. Yeah. Very, you were very precision instrument. Yeah. And then. And then we went from that to them sending us like these Excel spreadsheets that like, you know, like, <laughs> like I have a desktop of like, man, like, you're I, like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. I, I, I literally have a desktop and I think it's got like shit. I mean, it's like fucking like a $5,000 desktop and like I could go like, you know, grind out a coffee and fucking make a coffee and come back and it's still trying to open up the same spreadsheet. <laughs> you know, it's like literally it's like, you know like just ridiculous like yeah. over a billion dollars worth of sales like seen from multiple points of view Ugh. you know multiple years so i am not an analytics guy i am not any of that like i want to throw up every time i look at a spreadsheet yeah. like i couldn't even or anything microsoft sucks but oh god yeah, Excel, i can't like I can't this, this, this shit had like i mean like it probably had like thousands of columns and like like hundreds of thousands of rows no. and then like multiple tabs, you nope. know? No, I'll so, just tell you no right now. So I ended up, 
I, I you had to, to sort through this. I did have to sort through it, and oh I was just God. like, "Holy shit!" And like the numbers are huge. Like you know, like like every cell in the spreadsheet is like you know six figures and like shit like that. And I was like, "Man, how the fuck built that?" Yeah, I, I, honestly, it's probably like some fucking export from whatever crazy oh, accounting shit they God. got. So it's crazy, but it was actually a novel idea to them to i was like you know what like i gotta make sense of this and this makes no sense there's no there's not a human being on the planet that can look at this and like understand what's going on without like just spending weeks like digging through this i was like how about we like try and and visualize what these numbers actually represent so i proposed to them like hey let's let's build out like data visualization like let me figure out how this breaks down into like logical like components like chunks and then let's turn it into a graphic yeah let and, me take your numerical shit show here and turn <laughs> it into a beautiful piece of art yeah and gra- that, and gra- that normal people will love yeah and, and granted like excel does have like built-in graphs and charts and bullshit but like what we were kind of proposing was like all right like we're gonna add some order to this like basically it was like it was like kind of taking a step back and looking at their product and and they did have like their their brand kind of segmented like their right. footwear line is kind of broken down into categories but what we did is we got kind of cleaned up those categories and like clearly defined them and then we created like data visualization for each of these categories over years and and kind of made made like the consumption of this data like fucking possible and that helped me wrap my head around what was going on and we had done research about like what was going on in the market at the time like all the way through to like pulling articles out of like the wall street journal what was going on like with like national economics like you know like the economy as a whole all the way through to like their specific segment of it you know like footwear or apparel right and um and then from there like started kind of like figuring out like you know like basically realized that they had like a super kind of myopic view of the market like they were working like season by season and not really kind of stringing the seasons together into like a broader plan so we helped them like navigate through that and kind of really did some stuff that i'm still super proud of because it was so far outside my wheelhouse and no all of that that you just described is so far outside my wheelhouse like (laughs) i couldn't have made it that like i would have done pretty much the exact same thing. Like if I would have got sent a spreadsheet like that, I would have like called the CEO or whoever, like I was work, who my main point of contact was for the contract. And I would have been like, um, yeah, so you crashed my computer. And so <laughs> fuck that. Um, we're just going to shoot some cool shit. We're just going to shoot from the hip here. So buckle your seatbelt and hold the fuck on. Yeah. That wouldn't have worked, but you know what she basically, you know, what she wanted to know was, like at the end of the day, I mean, we ended up doing this big presentation on trend and like kind of describing her like the catalyst, like how it's just, it's not necessarily something that like, oh, everybody wakes up and suddenly like they want, you know, red shoes. Like all of that has to start somewhere. And so we kind of took a step back and described that process of how that originates. But it's not it's not specific to like style. Like there's a lot of, you know, like you need kind of like a tailwind, like you need the right market conditions. Like you need like a a sort of social consciousness that's open to exactly that. And there is sort of, I mean, there is the business side of it as well. So we're able to show like, okay, like this is what was going on. Like 
with the economy. This is what was going in the market. This was what your competitors were doing at that time. And we're able to like kind of provide evidence that painted a fairly clear picture of why that did what it did at that moment. And because they're able to understand the context of it, they're able to then assemble a sort of template that allowed them to understand the context moving forward. And um, they hadn't undergone an exercise like that. We had never done anything like that. I mean, even to get through that, I, I ended up uh, just, you know, through colleagues I had in New York, had this guy, friend of mine that um, does financial modeling specifically for agencies. And uh, he kind of held my hand through a lot of like these numbers, you know, crunching through it and kind of helping me wrap my head around it. And, you know, he learned a lot along the way too, because I'm a super visual person. And like, so that's kind of, I kept pushing back, like, Hey, I got to see it. Like, I got to, I got to wrap my head around this and like kind of making him think about those numbers a different way as well. But ultimately, like we ended up delivering like a nearly like 100 page document that broke down like their entire business, like where they came from with very specific evidence of that explained why they saw what they saw. That allowed us to then put together a three year plan on how we were proposing they should move forward on the whole thing. So that's kind of like the tail end of it. I mean, from there, we start talking to North Face, which is another VF company and the end of the day like the whole thing kind of imploded like you know this lady walked in gave a presentation on the whole thing and uh actually she gave three different plans you know one of them was the one we put together another one was a super safe plan and then like the third plan was like kind of like halfway between the two and uh got in a big fight with the board and walked out and quit and then like half the senior staff there left with her and turned into a big shit show and I was bummed at the time because it was a big contract, but you know, at the end of the day, like I wanted to work on my own shit. Yeah. Anyways. So that was kind of the catalyst right there for you to like finally be like, okay, I'm done with the, the consulting with big clients. I'm going to go back to my own branding. Exactly. And that was around the same time too. Like I was going through all the shit with my dickhead neighbor. So right. it was just like this big ass push, like get the fuck out, go do your own thing. And I was like in a place where I was just like, you know what? Like, I just want to go up into the fucking mountains and lose myself, just work on my own shit and not deal with anybody. Right. So yeah, that, that's, that's what I did. I came up here, but then like, as soon as I started getting, you know, getting to work on my own stuff, just like reached another bottleneck. Like once again, like these vendors, like dropping the ball, like pain in the ass to deal with, like communication sucked, you know, product and, was substandard. Yeah. So, you know, kind of took a step back. Um, you know, decided I was going to open up the screen printing facility, put a bunch of work into identifying what was like the best of the best in terms of equipment and materials, you know, spent the rest of the year sort of provisioning the facility, putting it together, getting the electrical in place, plumbing, pneumatics, all that crap. And then, um, and we got our press online in the last couple of days of December, like literally, I think our press came online like December 27th. Um, we're doing final configurations, like literally like new year's Eve. And, um, that was last year. Then this year basically spent the whole year just kind of really going through the paces, like, you know, seeing how far we could push that equipment, you know, learning our own techniques literally from scratch because the equipment was new to us. You know, like when you're dealing with like, professional like commercial grade like equipment like that you you can't go on youtube like there's no fucking videos literally like explaining how to use like a fucking 
$20,000 press or whatever it is, you know? No. So, and we, not to mention the, the, the problems that we ran into with the, when we were printing our stuff was the, um, the temperature stuff. Oh, with all yeah. of the. So yeah, of course we're in Northwest Montana. We're seeing like temperatures dip to like negative 30. Um, we're so new at things that we weren't sure if we were doing something wrong or, you know, what was going on, but turns out like, you know, a lot of the chemicals we use, like the emulsions and stuff are they're temperature sensitive, you know? Yeah. So they're coming out of like Washington state, you know, being trucked through Idaho when it's negative 30. So the emulsion freezes, you know, at the molecular level, we're screwing the whole thing up. So it's not reacting properly. Then we're dealing with hostile conditions here, you know, extreme fluctuations of temperature, like, you know, it'll go from negative 30, like first thing in the morning to like, maybe it'll be 15 degrees by afternoon, you know? So it's like wild temperature swings. Then the humidity is also all over the place. Oh, it's a 45 degree temperature swing. Yeah. Yeah. So we're dealing with all of that shit and like trying to figure it out. And like they, I mean, even, even the people like the vendors selling us all this stuff, weren't entirely familiar with those types of environmental conditions. So it was kind of new to them. Like, they're like, holy shit, like we've never been through that. And they're like trying to talk me through things and like scrambling on their end to fucking explain what's going on because they don't even really know. So we are figuring that whole shit out and figuring out like, you know, reassembling like a supply chain and our own workflows and just kind of dialing it in, understanding the equipment, you know, trying to, reverse engineer techniques and come up with our own techniques for shit. So that's kind of what we did most of this year. You know, I mean, all along we had friends like you guys, you know, kind of come along, like knew we had the equipment, like, Hey, like I got some shirts Let's do some shirts and let's do some stuff. Yeah. yeah. In reality, I mean, we probably weren't quite ready for it, but you know, I was like, all right, like I'll fucking figure it out. You know, and like, you guys did. You guys did a great yeah. job. As soon as we got through kind of the environmental friction that you were just describing, like we, I'm super happy. And I know everybody that's, you know, bought stuff from our brand has been ha super happy about the, about the quality of the product. So I think it's good. Um, you know, you and I always have really great interaction, really great conversation. And something that I definitely wanted to tap into while we're sitting here sucking down some Awesome Montana beer. What are we drinking here? Jeremiah Johnson. <laughs> Brewed in Montana. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I wanted to jump you know, in. I think we need to talk to these guys about sponsoring a future I mean, podcast. Yeah, right? I think we could we could definitely hit them up and <laughs> be like, hey, guess what? Yeah. And for the record, uh, two thumbs up for this honey wizen thing they got going yeah, on. Yeah, they right got here. so we got what did we get to, we got we got the vanilla porter and we got the uh honey wizen. Vizen. So, yeah. So, we're a new podcast. We don't have sponsors. Jeremiah Johnson Brewery, if you want to sponsor the podcast, your beer is amazing. Um, so, yeah, we're sitting here drinking beer. Good Montana beer on a, on a big Montana ranch. <laughs> and so, one of the things that I think would be important to tap into um, is to talk about this big thing with social media that you and I have like peeled apart almost to nauseum <laughs> with our frustrations with what social media started out as and what it has currently wound up as. Because I remember when, you know, I started things back in 2010, um, 
I was not a social media fan um, because I was operational at the time and we were told to stay away from it. And then as it started to become a thing, we actually started utilizing it for a, you know, intelligence tool um, because bad guys also use Facebook and it became really handy to the point where we nailed a target that was in Jalalabad that we wanted to get to that posted a status of where he was at. <laughs> At his cousin's place, so we nailed his ass um, by using Facebook. And so once we did that, we started learning like what a valuable intelligence tool was. And so I was super leery, as most I think newly retired or you know guys that are transitioning from an operational career to you know civilian life and business life. Like it's a it's an everyday you know it's an everyday tool for a lot of people's lives. Um, I'm going to be brutally honest. I fucking hate social media. Um, but it's a, it's a tool. If you, if you want to be in business, you, you know, it's, you've got to, and you want people to know who you are, you've got to use it. And it used to be super handy. Like I remember when I first started my brand, like back in 2010, you know, and I think we launched officially with product in 11, like 10 was a building year. 11 is when we stepped with product and we actually had something to offer to market. And we had a bunch of cool merch that everybody loved. And we could like, you know, I could put up a picture on Facebook of me drinking beer and typing on my laptop and we would do 600 to to $1,000 in sales on t-shirts right there. Mm-hmm. Like I'd almost sell out of fucking t-shirts just by po- posting a picture, wearing one, drinking beer and typing on my laptop. And now, you know, things are not that way. And over that time, Facebook IPO'd. And they are super, you know, they bought Instagram. And now we're kind of in this weird space where it's pay to play. And, you know, if they don't like you from a political standpoint, I mean, we don't sell firearms, but we support companies that sell firearms. And we, uh, you know, we are, you know, definitely Second Amendment supporters. And so it's, it's tough that, you know, I've like, Instagram won't give me business tools on my Instagram account, even though I like have nothing to do with the firearm, you know, with like manufacturing a firearm. And so, you know, having to deal with all of that and, you know, I just wanted to dive into that with you because you've got some really good insight with your brand on what's going on with, you know, even from like, you have nothing. I mean, you're, you're huge two a guy, but you don't have anything to do with that from an industry perspective. And so what has been your frustrations that you're seeing with what's going on with your brand on social media? Well, we're obviously not a brand within specifically that industry, but we have shown support through our Instagram feed, you know, every now and again, you know, we'll repost somebody who put a sticker on a Pelican case and has like their AR stacked up next to it or whatever. And, um, yeah, I mean, we've seen, in, in my opinion, I, I, I believe that our feed is being suppressed. I mean, I know a lot of people are saying, like, that their feeds are suppressed and shit isn't working and this and that. But, you know, like you, like, we, we submitted for verification a bunch of times. I lost count at this point. You know, last couple of times are, like, never a reason given, but they denied verification despite sending them, like, official like irs documents and shit like that to the point where they're like all right well you can't even apply 
unless you wait like 60 days, you know? So it's, it's obvious like what's going on. I mean, uh, there was just recently like congressional testimony on the subject, you know? Right. I saw the link that you sent me about that. And that was a very interesting, that was like when, uh, what's his name? Is it Ted Cruz interviewed the, the, that whistleblower over at, uh, Google that was talking about all of the, that, I mean, they, yeah, they, uh, had several people come up and testify about it. You know, the, the one that I found interesting was the, the one professor who, you know, according to his own history, voting record, this and that acknowledged like that he's hardcore left-leaning Democrat and, you know, was up there saying like what he sees is like them taking sides and you started using examples of like, you know, like just them simply, you know, filtering in their demographic people using, you know, Instagram and reminding, you know, like those that lean left to vote and not showing it to everybody equally, like can affect election cycles. Right. You know, that was like one example that, that, uh, he brought out, but yeah, I mean, as far as our own experience, like, first of all, like I kind of wonder if the whole thing was engineered from the beginning to be a tool to, keep tabs on what people are doing and, and be able to data mine like everyday life. It's hard to like, I, I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight, but like looking back on the whole thing, it's like hard to see it as anything else. That being said, I mean, I think like it doesn't take a rocket science to look at it and be like, you know what? Like there's a whole lot of bad shit going on. Like at this point, like it's almost tough to make an argument that, you know, that idea of connecting the world you know, supersedes like all the negative effect that's come out of what, what social media has become, you know, it's like, okay, we're so connected, but everywhere you look, you see a group like going out to dinner and everyone's staring at their phones instead of talking to each other. Right. I hate that. And and then when you say we're all connected, are we really connected when we're having our content like subverted and suppressed well, or? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, all right, like, you know, there's, clearly people in my own feed it's i've never liked a single thing it's like i follow them more for the business side of it you know never liked a single photo never comment on a single photo yet i see constantly like their shit popping up and meanwhile like you know my wife posting pictures of the dog or the kids or whatever i've liked every single one comment on most of them and like yet it never comes up. yeah i never see never see it so i mean clearly like there's a lot of games being played with the algorithm like we all get that like we you know at this point everyone kind of knows that what, what there's I've, definitely some voice there's some voice actuated stuff going on too because there's been specific times where i have not gotten on a page or liked anything or done anything with a certain page for a, a very considerable amount of time and they will come up in conversation with somebody and I'll talk about them or I'll talk about their page or I'll talk about their brand. And boom, the next time I jump on Instagram and I, f- you know, flip up, you know, my, I go to my, well, go yeah. to my news feed and I flip up, boom, there's, there's their page right there. Well, fact, fact of the matter is, is like, you know, when you take a look at companies like Google, you know, everything they do, they give away for the right. most part, right? Their maps are free. Gmail's free. You know, right. searches are free. Yet they're one of the largest companies in the world. Yeah. Like they're making that money somewhere. And where they're making that money is by selling user profiles. Yeah. 
like that's not published public information but you know like what i've read is like they basically make 300 dollars per year per user profile that they sell off like the way they get that is because they're building profiles on every single person and they're trying to figure out every possible like tool like a person would want and stringing them all together to assemble a more detailed profile because the more detailed it gets the more valuable it becomes like and fact, it's, it's easy to build tools when you can collect that much analytic exactly. data. Yeah. So, you know, Facebook is basically following the same roadmap is, you know, they use like a Facebook pixel. They use like their authentication system, which they've then like licensed out as a third party authentication system. So, you know, different websites will use that because it's convenient since a person doesn't have to register on your site. You use Facebook's authentication so that a person can log into your website. Facebook is the gateway. They provide that for free, but fact of the matter is, is like they just want to collect upstream and downstream data to create richer profiles that they then sell off, and that's how they make their money. So there is that. Now, I think that they've taken it to a whole other level as what you've described is like there's a term for it. It's called ad retargeting. Like that's a program that you can buy into, which basically means that they're going to leverage that upstream and downstream data that they have so that when you're like looking like let's say you go on to jam bullion's website and you're looking at fucking silver eagles then suddenly you're going to start seeing that shit pop up in instagram's feed and they're doing that through ad retargeting so you know jam bullion says like okay we want to buy advertising we want to target our advertising so it's more effective so we you know will leverage their technology to identify who might be interested in that you know, which mm -hmm. they're aware of because they're got their tentacles all over the internet. And then they're going to serve up ads that are specifically targeting people who within whatever threshold of time that they've bought into with their advertising package to then serve up that advertising. Like where it becomes like more insidious than that is when you begin to see like, for example, like, you know, now it's not even a big deal to unlock your phone by looking at it, you know, like some of the, you know, Android devices, even can tell what you're looking at on the screen. So it's got like the retina tracking, right. you know, what is happening now is they're beginning to build in the API tools that not only can tell what you're looking at, but can tell what your pupil response is to it. And from that, they can begin to put together their algorithms that can essentially begin predicting what the emotional response is. So, it's like looking, you know, for pupil dilation and based upon like the speed and the amount it dilates, it can tell like if it's an anxiety response, you know, if it's a pleasure response and they can begin to serve up advertising and, and build profiles based upon that, you know, and it sounds like some crazy minority report tinfoil hat bullshit, but I think fact, we should make t-shirts that say kill your phone. <laughs> fact of the matter is, is that's, that's going on. And, and like, you know, like, the innocent way of looking at it is like, okay, well, you know, if you're on Nike's website looking at sneakers and like, you know, your pupil dilates at this one particular sneaker. So the algorithm is predicting that, you know, that you had a positive emotional response to that one sneaker. So that instead of just serving up sneaker advertisements on Instagram, it's now serving that one shoe that you responded with, you know, but it becomes a slippery slope because the insidious side of that is like, okay, like, you know, you're, looking around the internet and you see like a QuickBooks ad and you have an anxiety response and then begin, then the IRS decides to use that data to then, you know, flag you for an audit. 
Right. Like that's where that goes. Yeah. I think. It, and the crazy thing is, is like, this isn't far reaching. The technology is already there. Yeah. Like, no, it's, you know, like it's, it's, it's pretty fucking nuts when you have like literally like, you know, cat litter brands, like retargeting advertising based upon like advanced algorithms and shit like that. Like that's how far along we already are. Like this isn't, right. you know, like, the, like some fucking elite technology that only a handful of people have access to. It's like, any asshole can fucking log into, you know, and set up a $200 campaign and retarget ads. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's not great what's going on right now in the social media realm. I think what you were really accurate earlier today when we were talking about how people are just numb. Yeah. So, you know, uh, kind I'm of describing, wondering... describing what, or I guess the kind of, you know, since obviously everyone listening isn't privy to the conversation we had earlier, but w what we were describing is like, you know, why are we seeing so many brands that were doing well before suddenly suffering, you know, and like, it's hard to come to any other conclusion as to it's like, you know, people have just kind of become numb to it. It's like if, you know, if you've never seen the home shopping network and then suddenly you see it, it's like, oh, shit, that's cool. Let me get this fucking knife set, like this cutlery set. It's right. like a deal. But, you know, when you've been like watching the home shopping network 24-7 for fucking years, like you just get numb to it. And that's exactly, I think, what is going on now is like, you know, everyone's like subscribed to every brand they can think of that they like. And so they get all day long, this steady stream of whatever that brand is doing. And it's just like, you know, one thing after another, like, you know, product releases and product updates and whatever lifestyle marketing shit they're feeding the people. And it's just all day long. You're seeing this fucking curated feed of cool shit. Like you just get numb to it. And like, you just don't want to pull the trigger no matter how cool the shit shows, you know, it shows up like, you're just tired of fucking everything and you're just not pulling the trigger on any of it. Yeah. Everything in your, yeah, everything getting shoved in your face 24 seven. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I think if you combine what is going on with them suppressing what you're putting out, them charging you to boost things, you know, like I tried when we relaunched everything this last April, you know, I was so pissed when I came to the realization. Cause you know, I've, I shut things down with my brand for a while to concentrate on school and get through, you know, get my, you know, work on my degree for design and coming back and relaunching everything this last April from scratch after knowing what our sales numbers were and what our capabilities were for sales on social media last, the last go around, you know, back in 2016 or 15, 2015, um, the, I was super disappointed and then like seeing what the new, you know, what the new game was in terms of what we're, you know, being required to, to, to pay from, you know, a, from a standpoint of, you know, to boost things like I'm trying to grow my followership and trying to, you know, of course, you know, close sales and what with my customers and what I'm seeing is you know, they're like, pay this amount of money and you'll reach these amount of people pay this amount. And you'll, you know, it was a scaled, you know, there's it's scaled numbers. And I, you know, just out of curiosity, I, I think I did a campaign that was like $200 for the week. I spent 200 bucks, which for a new brand new startup on a limited budget, you know, I was working off of like, I think $20,000 of seed capital and 
that money has to be cash flow, that money has to pay for manufacturing, that money has to pay for shipping and receiving, that money has to pay for marketing. I mean, you know, you, you know the deal. So to then have, you know, pay this $200, like that's a chunk of change right there. And you're, when you're working as a small startup, you're counting every single dime that goes out the door. And I think my, like the ROI I got for spending that $200 on Facebook and Instagram for that week was, it was, it made me sick. Like I got, I think I converted one sale and sold a t-shirt. I think I got two new followers and that was it out of spending $200 for a week. And then I reached, you know, it said my, like my, my reach was like, I don't know, 5,000 people or something like that. Like they, they reached out to five to 8,000 people or something like that. But I only got one sale out, one t-shirt sale out of that. And then like two, two new, two new likes or two new follows. And I spent $200 yeah. for a week. And I'm like, um, no, that's not a good ROI for, for a young startup company. I think personally, I think Facebook and Instagram are cutting their nose off despite their face with what they're doing with, you know, what they're charging, how they're, you know, jamming up people's content. If they don't like your content, they completely suppress it. If they don't like your brand, they completely suppress it. And I think, you know, eventually, you know, people, are going to get tired of getting, you know, a constant bombardment of marketing shoved in their face all the time. And I think that, you know, companies like us are going to start seeking out other, other options to, you know, to capture, you know, to connect, connect with our, you know, to put out good product and connect with our, our customers. We're going to, we're going to find another way to do it eventually. So I think in the long run, you know, it, things are going to change. I would, postulate that they've been given unfair competitive advantage you know um i remember when that other social media platform vero launched yeah i joined vero as soon as it launched right and it just tanked it never went anywhere right you know? it, it did and it's like you could kind of like if you could like rewind and take a look at it it's like first of all it was like you know some freaking dude from syria that was mm-hmm. like the nephew of like some fucking moolah or whatever that's out there right. some fucking high-end political figure and it's like okay like the same way like you acknowledged earlier that facebook was a tool that you guys leveraged to find some bad guys like right. i'm sure that it's utilized i mean there's a lot of precedent you read articles about it about mm-hmm. how it's been used as a tool to fucking track people down and find right. people and that's just what they're willing to publish on mainstream media like reality is it's a fucking powerful tool to keep tabs on what people are doing you right. know like, if you have a fucking awesome tool, like, you don't want to give that up, you know? And especially you don't want to, like, take a tool that you have and hand it to somebody that is, like, literally on a fucking enemy list, you know? And that's exactly what Vero was. Is like, all right, like, you know, you're going to take a tool that's, like, being leveraged here and give it to a country like Syria? Like, that was, like, fucking dead from Jump Street. Like, it was right. never going to go anywhere. And you know, it doesn't even take a rocket scientist to figure out like, okay, well, we can throttle like the internet. Like, it's no problem. Let's, you know, write a script and fucking upload it to some DNS server so that anything that's going to this specific IP is just going to like get bogged down and fucking be just a miserable experience. Right. And yeah, I mean, I don't have any fucking proof of that, but it's so easy to do. And yeah. It's and so the, the functionality it's- was not great on that platform at all. Like it bogged and it stalled and it, locked up yeah. all the time yeah and it's it's hard to not connect those dots and kind of see see 
a, a scenario like that play out. But, you know, beyond that, it's like, at this point, like, who do you know that isn't frustrated by social media? It's like, everyone fucking can't stand it. And, and fact of the matter is, too, is like, you take a look at one of the co-founders of, uh, you know, Facebook, like, there's a YouTube interview with him where he's literally acknowledging that in the earliest days of Facebook, that they were doing all kinds of, like, studies to figure out, like, the, like, some of the addictive qualities of it. And that, one of the things that he was criticizing like that he tried to put the brakes on it saying like that they were realizing that they were sort of capitalizing on some of the flaws in human behaviors like really tapping into true like addiction by what they were doing and rather than question whether they should be doing it they decided to turn that into part of their business strategy yeah i mean it's super addictive i mean you look look around you like you were talking about earlier you go to a restaurant and you'll see for people, and I've been guilty of it myself. I mean, like you, you know, show up and you sit down and you start talking to people and then all of a sudden your phone buzzes and you got like a notification or you've got an email or you've got something that distracts you and you take a look at it and you're like, oh, I need to respond to that. And you don't even think about it until you like sit there and look up and, you know, people are staring at you because you have not been participating in the conversation for the last 10 minutes. And then you realize, oh shit, I'm being a (laughs) rude. I'm being a rude dickhead right now and I need to put my phone away. And that that's just scratching the surface. What about the people that like totally change the course of their day-to-day life just so they can create Instagrammable moments? Right. You know, like literally change the way they dress, the way they go about their day, like literally like stage their life so they have shit to fucking post. Yeah, yeah people that have like wrapped their whole – like turn, shifted their whole life into creating content. Yeah, and yeah. it's an amazing thing too like, you know, where you see like, you know – like a couple like people you know friends and shit and it's like oh man like they got such an amazing relationship this and that and then it's like then you find out they're in the middle of a divorce and like holy shit like you were like the model couple what the fuck you know like yeah stuff like that like is really pretty insane but or the other trap that i think people fall into is because i have some good friends that are very successful on social media and have a huge following and they I love them to death, but their whole life has just become around, like, it is It is just completely around developing content and, like, pushing content out to their, you know, to the to the point where they're, like, every facet of their life, they try and, like, figure out how to make it content and to, to put it out. And I, you know, I had a great talk about this with my, you know, friend Matt Vincent, who I was, you know, he's an amazing human being, and I was lucky enough to be on his podcast, which really inspired me to start mine. And he you know, he, he and I talked about this and we talked about like feeding constantly trying to feed the content monster and trying to keep up with the demands of your, uh, of your audience. And, you know, I, I, him and I both agreed, we don't ever want to be in a place where we feel obligated to just, you know, try and crank out content where we're constantly forcing content to just keep up with the Joneses or to keep up with, you know, what we feel, like we are obligated to do for our, for our audience. Like I never want to be in that position ever. But like, once again, when you like, even that, like you're not paying obviously to put up your posts, but it is an investment of time and energy. It is. And and when you begin to look at the return on that investment, you know, like I would challenge you and everybody listening to, you know, just pick 10 of the top people you can think of on Instagram, you know, from freaking Kim Kardashian to whoever, the biggest accounts you can think of and just do some quick math on how many followers they have and what the average like is on their photos 
you know like it's it's insane it's like like when i did it like very few people pop up above one percent it's like you see like accounts that have like 22 million followers and you look at it and it's like oh man they got you know all these like comments and all these likes but then when you do the math and begin to realize it's almost always below one percent and it's like man the only thing you're asking is for a person once they're following just freaking double tap the photo like like it that's all you're asking them to do it's like literally like no investment at all right and even still less than one percent of most people's followers are willing to take that chance so when you begin start starting to look at like what the conversion rate is if if only one percent are willing to fucking double click a photo how many of those people are willing to like click a link and buy something you know or click a link and submit their email address it's like a fraction of that one percent so it's like the math just doesn't add up and it's like kind of what we talked about earlier it's like if if the conversion rate is a fraction of one percent then fuck man you might as well be buying email lists from china and spamming people for viagra because those are the types of fucking numbers those guys do right you know so i mean I think the platform's still alive, again, because they have an unfair competitive advantage. There's nothing else. I mean, everyone I know is, like, just ready to jump ship. And, you know, I think the reason they haven't so far is there is truly an addictive quality to it. You know, you can Google that, and there's plenty of studies and research and talks about it. But So what do you think the answer is? What do you think, you know, guys like us that are getting... I think that we're seeing the decline of the social media era, personally. Um I think that a large segment of users are beginning to realize it a lot. I mean, I know a lot of people who've just decided like, fuck it. Like they just deleted it off their phone and they're not using it anymore. But you can see that the engagement you know, the engagement rates are all declining. Like Instagram themselves, like their own published reports, like the only uh, segment of users that are maintaining at this point are what they're calling micro influencers. It's people that have very high engagement rates you know, and typically engagement is measured in terms of like double clicks, but I'm talking about like, you know, people, micro influencers are people that have, you know, 10,000 or less followers that are again, custom tailoring their life specific to their feed, like curating their feed, but that are also like using their feed to communicate with their audience. Right. You know, and those people are seeing engagement rates above 1%. But when you begin to look at what, what they're getting, it's like, okay, so you got 10% of your followers to double click your photo. Like, who the fuck cares? Like, what are you going to do with that? Right. You know, how many brands have decided, like, you know what? Like, it's not worth paying influencers at all. Like, I could tell you, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I don't have a huge following. We've got 54,000 followers, I think, on, on 12 ounce profit um, Instagram. No, and you I, guys are higher than that. I think you guys are in like the 60s, aren't you? I don't remember what Let's... it is, but I can tell you this is that the return on investment is so low on Instagram that it's not even worth me like sending out free t-shirts to get people to post about it and see where that goes. Like it's just not even worth my time. Like even though the shirts don't cost me shit because I have my own printing facility, that simply the cost of postage isn't even worth it. Like my return on it isn't worth the postage. Right. So, you know, I mean I took the time to kind of do an audit and realize like, all right, if one, you know, less than 1% are willing to double tap this and from experience know that a fraction of that are willing to, you know, actually convert over into a sale or an email subscribe. It's just really like not worth it. And the unfortunate fact is that 
you know, along the way, like throughout this whole process is like we've sort of all given up our own online properties to use what was supposed to be a tool, but that became like the main vehicle to sort of mediate the conversation between us and our fans or us and our customers, you know, how it's dumbed down relationships between friends where it's like before, it's like you didn't talk to somebody for a while, like you reach out, you call, you write, you show up. But now because you're seeing like what your fucking friend ate for lunch and you're seeing pictures of his kid and you're willing to double tap it, like you feel just connected enough that you don't bother reaching out and calling, you know, writing a letter or showing up. So they've like cheapened those relationships. And those are personal relationships, right, that you build over time, like meaningful relationships that cheapen those. But they've like put themselves between like, you know, brands and customers and you know, they're in a position of power because they are sitting in the middle. So now that we've reached a sort of point in the cycle where they're willing to, you know, sort of interject their own ideology or their own, you know, sense of values. It's like, all right, well, we're not into guns, so we're going to suppress those posts. Or, you know what, we don't like that political candidate. So we're going to, you know, shadow ban those users or whatever, you know. And I mean, that's a fucked up situation to be in. Yeah. No, it certainly is. Certainly is. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is, man. We'll keep, we'll keep noodling on it. I mean, one of the things that I'm doing to try and reach out to more of my customers and more people is to start this, start this podcast. People have been bugging me to do it for a while. I've been wanting to do it for a while. I'm glad that I got a chance to come up here and. Well, the interesting thing too, is like, we've kind of like evolved to the point where a lot of I mean, a lot of the people that are Instagram don't know anything from before Instagram. Like they're not literally not old enough to remember like AOL chat rooms or message boards or even like newsletter subscriptions, which I'm beginning to see that make a comeback. You know, the two things that I've noticed is like how many people are starting up podcasts and how many people are starting to put together like newsletters again. You know, I'm not sure if it'll come full circle and that's just going to kind of come up and supplant social media but what i can see is that social media is on decline like everyone's seeing it like you know there's plenty of articles there that break down the metrics on it and it's a real thing as far as where we're going to go from here not entirely sure but you know i think it's it's in our dna to you know as as you said to sit around a fire and trade stories you know explore concepts like you know think think through like topics and solve problems and discuss them and share like i mean we've been doing that since we were living in caves right that'll always be a thing and you know i think we'll look back on social media and be like fuck how do we even allow all that to happen but you know we'll continue figuring out ways to connect and share and explore not sure exactly what form it'll take but you know i'm sure like like me you're anxious to see like this whole fucking instagram thing go away already yeah i just want to I'm just super frustrated with it and just like you are and I'm sure everybody else is out there. Like it just, I want to be able to connect with, you know, like it, it, it upsets me that I, I spent when I started my Facebook account back in 2009, I think came out, I think Facebook came out in 07. I started my account in late 08, early 09. And then started my company in 2010 and was still not on board with social media because I didn't trust it or like it. And then I think really got involved with Facebook in 2011 heavily 
I grew my following and it's super small still, but I grew it to, I think just close to 5,000 people. And so it's upsetting to me when I like go, when I put up a post and it reaches like 900 people and it gets like hardly any engagement. And I'm like, well, I worked for several years to build, just, just get five, just posting stuff to get 5,000 people to follow me. And I can't reach my organic audience that I built before you even IPO'd to, you know, spread my message or to connect with my pe my people or my customers or to put out information. Like I can't reach them unless I pay, I can't reach my whole audience unless I pay Facebook, you know, 40 bucks, which I think is, you know, it's completely stupid. So. Well, what's stupid about it is that when you pay the 40 bucks, you don't get shit for it. Right. It just, you, you get what they tell you, you get, which you don't even know if, okay, they're like, Thanks for your $40. You reached, you know, 7,000 people. <laughs> okay, did I? Yeah. Yeah, did I? Because that's funny because I only got like one new like and I reached 3,000 more people than my, what my, so I doubled my reach from what my organic, re, you know, what I have organically nearly and I only got two new likes or two new follows. Like that just, the whole thing's a fucking scam. Yeah, it's all bullshit. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited for somebody to step up that's got the gravitas to really come up with a new platform that's going to be the new thing that will be, you know, I, I'm not I'm not anti people making money, but I'm definitely anti, you know, Facebook and Instagram like controlling the narrative and doing all the subversive shit that we've been talking about for you know the last I don't know 40 minutes. So I I, I think that I'm. I'm excited to see what's going to happen and I'm going to put my creative thinking cap on, you know, to see how I can start getting more connected to my, my people, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's everybody. And it's not, it's not just us, like small brands that are realizing it. It's like even these brands like Nike are, are seeing like, you know what, like the return on the investment is diminishing to the point where this isn't even worth it. It's anymore. not worth it. Yeah. It's not worth so, it. yeah, I mean, I, I would expect like, I mean, the one thing that I think is assured is that people are going to reinvest in their own online properties. Yeah. You know, I mean, we kind of saw the same thing even before, like Instagram, even before Facebook, like even as far back as AOL, like back in those days when people were sort of advertising their AOL handles instead of their URL, you know, or their MySpace page instead of their URL. So we've kind of seen this thing build for quite a while, but like at this point it's not unusual to see like a national campaign and they don't even put their URL. They're putting their fucking Instagram handle. Right. You know? And yeah, I mean, it sucks that we've put ourselves in this position because you, you can kind of see how it, how it had like, it was inevitable for it to get to this point, you know, like right. they were the middleman, they were the gatekeepers, you know, Facebook in fact prides itself on that. It's, they created this sort of walled environment with Facebook. Like you got to join to see like certain content. You got to do this and do that. Then they extended like that, uh, you know, authentication system for a lot of other websites. Like, oh, use that same authentication system. Like they're sort of really kind of firewalling everything off and really want to be the gatekeepers to everything. And we didn't need to allow that. Right. You know? 
It's like, I remember what it was like to run your own blog and have people kind of come and see your own content or to host your own video. Right. You know, now it's like, take a look at like what YouTube is doing to the 2A community. Yeah. They're completely they've demonetized everything and they're completely subverting all that content. Yeah. So we um, allowed ourselves to put all that power in their hands and now we're suffering the consequence of that. Yeah. I think it'll be a, only a matter of time before everyone will get tired of that. Cause I mean, it's not just happening to the two A community. It's happening to everybody. They I mean, you don't, your brand is about, you know, street art and, you know, you know, skateboarding and drinking beer and punk rock. And like, you're getting, you're getting subverted, yeah. you know? So yeah, I don't know what the answer is, man. We'll have to keep working on it, but uh, we hit our two hour mark here, bud. So let's, <laughs> people are going to be like, okay, guys, it's a great conversation. I've got shit to do. Um, well, thanks for listening. So Alan, you, where can, where can people find you, man? So uh, website's 12ounceprofit.com. That's numbers one, two, O-Z-P-R-O-P-H-E-T.com. Um, screen printing is 12 ounce collective. Uh, that's again one two o z c o l l e c t i v e dot com. Uh, I'm not even gonna fucking give my Instagram handle. Fuck that. So come check me out online. Yeah, on he's got website. a he's got a forum on the site. He's already well ahead of trying to get out of this social media curve. But uh, yeah, go check out his stuff. If you guys need amazing artwork and you know, merchandise printed, definitely check him out. He does amazing work and yeah, here we are, Montana. Thanks for your time, man. And thanks for listening guys. And we will see you again next week. Awesome. All, All right. right. Thank you. Have a good one. All right, well, that's a wrap, folks. Thanks for uh, sitting down with uh, me and old Alan for uh, episode two. And we'll just keep this train moving right on down the track. We will uh, I hope everybody has a fantastic week. Uh, enjoy yourselves. Remember to take time out for yourselves because it's real easy to get caught in that grind and uh, wake up on Monday morning and blink your eyes and uh, all of a sudden find yourself at midday Friday wondering what the hell happened. So... Everybody be sure to take care of yourselves. Get some some of that self-care, self-love in this week. Have a fantastic weekend and a following week next week. We will catch you for old episode Trace of the Lone Element podcast. Stay tuned. We'll see you then.